Section 30 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kat Din in Osaka, Japan. Self-Help with Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Section 30, Chapter 11, Self-Culture. Facilities and Difficulties, Part 3. Coleridge, in many respects, resembled Constant. He possessed equally brilliant powers, but was similarly infirm of purpose. With all his great intellectual gifts, he wanted the gift of industry and was averse to continuous labor. He wanted also the sense of independence and thought it no degradation to leave his wife and children to be maintained by the brainwork of the noble Saudi, while he himself retired to Highgate Grove to discourse transcendentalism to his disciples looking down contemptuously upon the honest work going forward beneath him amidst the din and smoke of london with remunerative employment at his command he stooped to accept the charity of friends and notwithstanding his lofty ideas of philosophy he condescended to humiliations from which many a day laborer would have shrunk how different in spirit was southey laboring not merely at work of his own choice and at task-work often tedious and distasteful but also unremittingly and with the utmost eagerness seeking and storing knowledge purely for the love of it every day every hour had its allotted employment engagements to publishers requiring punctual fulfilment the current expenses of a large household duty to provide for southey had no crop growing while his pen was idle my ways he used to say are as broad as the king's high road and my means lie in an inkstand robert nicoll wrote to a friend after reading the recollections of coleridge what a mighty intellect was lost in that man, for want of a little energy, a little determination. Nicol himself was a true and brave spirit who died young, but not before he had encountered and overcome great difficulties in life. At his outset, while carrying on a small business as a bookseller, he found himself weighed down with a debt of only twenty pounds, which he said he felt weighing like a millstone round his neck, and that, if he had it paid, he never would borrow again from mortal man. Writing to his mother at the time, he said, Fear not for me, dear mother, for I feel myself daily growing firmer and more hopeful in spirit. The more I think and reflect, and thinking, not reading, is now my occupation, I feel that, whether I be growing richer or not, I am growing a wiser man, which is far better. Pain, poverty, and all the other wild beasts of life which so affrighten others, I am so bold as to think I could look in the face without shrinking, without losing respect for myself, faith in man's high destinies or trust in god there is a point which it costs much mental toil and struggling to gain but which when once gained a man can look down from as a traveller from a lofty mountain on storms raging below while he is walking in sunshine that i have yet gained this point in life i will not say but i feel myself daily nearer to it it is not ease but effort not facility but difficulty that makes men there is, perhaps, no station in life in which difficulties have not to be encountered and overcome before any decided measure of success can be achieved. Those difficulties are, however, our best instructors, as our mistakes often form our best experience. Charles James Fox was accustomed to say that he hoped more from a man who failed, and yet went on in spite of his failure, than from the buoyant career of the successful. It is all very well, said he, to tell me that a young man has distinguished himself by a brilliant first speech. He may go on, 
or he may be satisfied with his first triumph. But show me a young man who has not succeeded at first, and nevertheless has gone on, and I will back that young man to do better than most of those who have succeeded at the first trial. We learn wisdom from failure much more than from success. We often discover what will do by finding out what will not do, and probably he who never made a mistake never made a discovery. It was the failure in the attempt to make a sucking pump act, when the working bucket was more than thirty-three feet above the surface of the water to be raised, that led observant men to study the law of atmospheric pressure, and opened a new field of research to the genius of Galileo, Torricelli, and Boyle. John Hunter used to remark that the art of surgery would not advance until professional men had the courage to publish their failures as well as their successes. What, the engineer said, of all things most wanted in mechanical engineering was a history of failures. We want, he said, a book of blots. When Sir Humphrey Davy was once shown a dexterously manipulated experiment, he said, I thank God I was not made a dexterous manipulator, for the most important of my discoveries have been suggested to me by failures. Another distinguished investigator in physical science has left it on record that whenever in the course of his researches he encountered an apparently insuperable obstacle, he generally found himself on the brink of some discovery. The very greatest things, great thoughts, discoveries, inventions, have usually been nurtured in hardship, often pondered over in sorrow, and at length established with difficulty. Beethoven said of Rossini, that he had in him the stuff to have made a good musician if he had only, when a boy, been well flogged, but that he had been spoilt by the facility with which he produced. Men who feel their strength within them need not fear to encounter adverse opinions. They have far greater reason to fear undue praise and too friendly criticism. When Mendelssohn was about to enter the orchestra at Birmingham, on the first performance of his Elijah, he said laughingly to one of his friends and critics, Stick your claws into me. Don't tell me what you like, but what you don't like. It has been said, and truly, that it is the defeat that tries the general more than the victory. Washington lost more battles than he gained, but he succeeded in the end. The Romans, in their most victorious campaigns, almost invariably began with defeats. Moreau used to be compared by his companions to a drum, which nobody hears of except it be beaten. Wellington's military genius was perfected by encounter with difficulties of apparently the most overwhelming character, but which only served to nerve his resolution and bring out more prominently his great qualities as a man and a general. So the skillful mariner obtains his best experience amidst storms and tempests, which train him to self-reliance, courage, and the highest discipline, and we probably own to rough seas and wintry nights the best training of our race of British seamen who are, certainly, not surpassed by any in the world. Necessity may be a hard schoolmistress, but she is generally found the best. Though the ordeal of adversity is one from which we naturally shrink, yet, when it comes, we must bravely and manfully encounter it. Burns says truly, Though losses and crosses be lessons right severe, there's wit there, you'll get there, you'll find no other where. Sweet indeed are the uses of adversity, they reveal to us our powers and call forth our energies. If there be real worth in the character, like sweet herbs, it will give forth its finest fragrance when pressed. Crosses, says the old proverb, are the ladders that lead to heaven. What is even poverty itself, asks Richter, that a man should murmur under it? It is but as the pain of piercing a maiden's ear, and you hang precious jewels in the wound. 
in the experience of life it is found that the wholesome discipline of adversity in strong natures usually carries with it a self-preserving influence many are found capable of bravely bearing up under privations and cheerfully encountering obstructions who are afterwards found unable to withstand the more dangerous influences of prosperity it is only a weak man whom the wind deprives of his cloak a man of average strength is more in danger of losing it when assailed by the beams of a too genial sun thus it often needs a higher discipline and a stronger character to bear up under good fortune than under adverse some generous natures kindle and warm with prosperity but there are many on whom wealth has no such influence base hearts it only hardens making those who were mean and servile mean and proud but while prosperity is apt to harden the heart to pride adversity in a man of resolution will serve to ripen it into fortitude to use the words of burke difficulty is a severe instructor set over us by the supreme ordinance of a parental guardian and instructor who knows us better than we know ourselves as he loves us better too he that wrestles with us strengthens our nerves and sharpens our skill our antagonist is thus our helper without the necessity of encountering difficulty life might be easier but men would be worth less for trials wisely improved train the character and teach self-help thus hardship itself may often prove the wholesomest discipline for us though we recognize it not when the gallant young hodson unjustly removed from his indian command felt himself sore pressed down by unmerited calumny and reproach he yet preserved the courage to say to a friend i strive to look the worst boldly in the face as i would an enemy in the field and to do my appointed work resolutely and to the best of my ability satisfied that there is a reason for all and that even irksome duties well done bring their own reward and that if not still they are duties the battle of life is in most cases fought uphill and to win it without a struggle were perhaps to win it without honor if there were no difficulties there would be no success if there were nothing to struggle for there would be nothing to be achieved difficulties may intimidate the weak but they act only as a wholesome stimulus to men of resolution and valor all experience of life indeed serves to prove that the impediments thrown in the way of human advancement may for the most part be overcome by steady good conduct honest zeal activity perseverance and above all by a determined resolution to surmount difficulties and stand up manfully against misfortune the school of difficulty is the best school of moral discipline for nations as for individuals indeed the history of difficulty would be but a history of all the great and good things that have yet been accomplished by men it is hard to say how much northern nations owe to their encounter with a comparatively rude and changeable climate and an originally sterile soil which is one of the necessities of their condition involving a perennial struggle with difficulties such as the natives of sunnier climes know nothing of and thus it may be that though our finest products are exotic the skill and industry which have been necessary to rear them have issued in the production of a native growth of men not surpassed on the globe wherever there is difficulty the individual man must come out for better or worse encounter with it will train his strength and discipline his skill heartening him for future effort as the racer by being trained to run against the hill at length courses with facility the road to success may be steep to climb and it puts to the proof the energies of him who would reach the summit but by experience a man soon learns that obstacles are to be overcome by grappling with them 
that the nettle feels as soft as silk when it is boldly grasped, and that the most effective help towards realizing the object proposed is the moral conviction that we can and will accomplish it. Thus difficulties often fall away of themselves before the determination to overcome them. Much will be done if we do but try. Nobody knows what he can do till he has tried, and few try their best till they have been forced to do it. If I could do such and such a thing, says the desponding youth, but nothing will be done if he only wishes. The desire must ripen into purpose and effort, and one energetic attempt is worth a thousand aspirations. It is these thorny ifs, the mutterings of impotence and despair, which so often hedge round the field of possibility and prevent anything being done or even attempted. A difficulty, said Lord Lyndhurst, is a thing to be overcome. Grapple with it at once. Facility will come with practice, and strength and fortitude with repeated effort. Thus the mind and character may be trained to an almost perfect discipline, and enabled to act with a grace, spirit, and liberty almost incomprehensible to those who have not passed through a similar experience. Everything that we learn is the mastery of a difficulty, and the mastery of one helps to the mastery of others. Things which may at first sight appear comparatively valueless in education, such as the study of the dead languages and the relations of lines and surfaces, which we call mathematics, are really of the greatest practical value, not so much because of the information which they yield as because of the development which they compel. The mastery of these studies evokes effort and cultivates powers of application which otherwise might have lain dormant. Thus, one thing leads to another, and so the work goes on through life, encounter with difficulty ending only when life and culture end. But indulging in the feeling of discouragement never helped anyone over a difficulty, and never will. D'Alembert's advice to the student who complained to him about his want of success in mastering the first elements of mathematics was the right one. Go on, sir, and faith and strength will come to you. The danseuse who turns a pirouette, the violinist who plays a sonata, have acquired their dexterity by patient repetition and after many failures. Karasimi, when praised for the ease and grace of his melodies, exclaimed, Ah, you little know with what difficulty this ease has been acquired. Sir Joshua Reynolds, when once asked how long it had taken him to paint a certain picture, replied, All my life. Henry Clay, the American orator, when giving advice to young men, thus described to them the secret of his success in the cultivation of his art. I owe my success in life, said he, chiefly to one circumstance, that at the age of twenty-seven I commenced, and continued for years, the process of daily reading and speaking upon the contents of some historical or scientific book. These off-hand efforts were made, sometimes in a cornfield, at others in the forest, and not unfrequently in some distant barn, with the horse and the ox for my auditors. It is to this early practice of the art of all arts that I am indebted for the primary and leading impulses that stimulated me onward and have shaped and molded my whole subsequent destiny. Curran, the Irish orator, when a youth, had a strong defect in his articulation, and at school he was known as Stuttering Jack Curran. While he was engaged in the study of law and still struggling to overcome his defect, he was stung into eloquence by the sarcasms of a member of a debating club who characterized him as Orator Mum, for, like Cowper, when he stood up to speak on a previous occasion, Curran had not been able to utter a word. The taunt stung him, and he replied in a triumphant speech, 
this accidental discovery in himself of the gift of eloquence encouraged him to proceed in his studies with renewed energy he corrected his enunciation by reading aloud emphatically and distinctly the best passages in literature for several hours every day studying his features before a mirror and adopting a method of gesticulation suited to his rather awkward and ungraceful figure he also proposed cases to himself which he argued with as much care as if he had been addressing a jury Curran began business with the qualification which Lord Eldon stated to be the first requisite for distinction, that is, to be not worth a shilling. While working his way laboriously at the bar, still oppressed by the diffidence which had overcome him in his debating club, he was on one occasion provoked by the Judge Robinson into making a very severe retort. In the case under discussion, Curran observed that he had never met the law as laid down by his lordship in any book in his library that may be sir said the judge in a contemptuous tone but i suspect that your library is very small his lordship was notoriously a furious political partisan the author of several anonymous pamphlets characterized by unusual violence and dogmatism curran roused by the allusion to his straitened circumstances replied thus it is very true my lord that i am poor and the circumstance has certainly curtailed my library my books are not numerous but they are select and I hope they have been perused with proper dispositions. I have prepared myself for this high profession by the study of a few good works, rather than by the composition of a great many bad ones. I am not ashamed of my poverty, but I should be ashamed of my wealth, could I have stooped to acquire it by servility and corruption. If I rise not to rank, I shall at least be honest, and should I ever cease to be so, many an example shows me that an ill-gained elevation, by making me the more conspicuous, would only make me the more universally and the more notoriously contemptible. The extremist poverty has been no obstacle in the way of men devoted to the duty of self-culture. Professor Alexander Murray, the linguist, learnt to write by scribbling his letters on an old wool card with the end of a burnt heather stem. The only book which his father, who was a poor shepherd, possessed, was a penny shorter catechism. But that, being thought too valuable for common use, was carefully preserved in a cupboard for the Sunday catechisings. Professor Moore, when a young man, being too poor to purchase Newton's Principia, borrowed the book, and copied the whole of it with his own hand. Many poor students, while laboring daily for their living, have only been able to snatch an atom of knowledge here and there at intervals, as birds do their food in wintertime, when the fields are covered with snow. They have struggled on, and faith and hope have come to them. A well-known author and publisher, William Chambers of Edinburgh, speaking before an assemblage of young men in that city, thus briefly described to them his humble beginnings for their encouragement. I stand before you, he said, a self-educated man. My education was that which is supplied at the humble parish schools of Scotland, and it was only when I went to Edinburgh, a poor boy, that I devoted my evenings, after the labors of the day, to the cultivation of that intellect which the Almighty has given me. From seven or eight in the morning till nine or ten at night was I at my business as a bookseller's apprentice, and it was only during hours after these, stolen from sleep, that I could devote myself to study. I did not read novels. My attention was devoted to physical science and other useful matters. I also taught myself French. I look back to those times with great pleasure, and am almost sorry I have not to go through the same experience again, for I reaped more pleasure when I had not a sixpence in my pocket studying in a garret in Edinburgh, than I now find when sitting amidst all the elegancies and comforts of a parlour. 
William Cobet's account of how he learned English grammar is full of interest and instruction for all students laboring under difficulties. I learned grammar, said he, when I was a private soldier on the pay of sixpence a day. The edge of my berth, or that of my guard bed, was my seat to study in. My knapsack was my bookcase. A bit of board lying on my lap was my writing table. And the task did not demand anything like a year of my life. I had no money to purchase candle or oil. In wintertime, it was rarely that I could get any evening light but that of the fire, and only my turn even of that. And if I, under such circumstances, and without parent or friend to advise or encourage me, accomplished this undertaking, what excuse can there be for any youth, however poor, however pressed with business, or however circumstanced as to room or other conveniences? To buy a pen or a sheet of paper I was compelled to forego some portion of food, though in a state of half-starvation— I had no moment of time that I could call my own, and I had to read and to write amidst the talking, laughing, singing, whistling, and brawling of at least half a score of the most thoughtless of men, and that, too, in the hours of their freedom from all control. Think not lightly of the farthing that I had to give, now and then, for ink, pen, or paper. That farthing was, alas, a great sum to me. I was as tall as I am now. I had great health and great exercise. The whole of the money, not expended for us at market, was two pence a week for each man. I remember, and well I may, that on one occasion I, after all necessary expenses, had, on a Friday, made shifts to have a half-penny in reserve, which I had destined for the purchase of a red herring in the morning. But, when I pulled off my clothes at night, so hungry then as to be hardly able to endure life, I found that I had lost my half-penny." I buried my head under the miserable sheet and rug and cried like a child. And again I say, if I, under circumstances like these, could encounter and overcome this task, is there, can there be, in the whole world, a youth to find an excuse for the non-performance? End of section 30. Recording by Kat Din in Osaka, Japan.